Marvin Olasky is the 71-year-old editor-in-chief of World Magazine, which is a Christian publication that comes out every two weeks dealing with current events and trends. He's also the author of more than 26 books, and his latest came out by design just in time for Father's Day. It's entitled, Lament for a Father, and it's subtitled, The Journey to Understanding and Forgiveness. And the title, as you might imagine, really tells you everything you need to know about its context. The book, as he writes in the latest issue of World Magazine, is the outgrowth of a column that he wrote on the 26th of October, 2019, entitled, Never a Catch. He writes, two months ago, the announcement brought back many memories. Next August 13th in Dyerville, Iowa, the Chicago White Sox and the New York Yankees will play a regular season game at a most irregular place, the site where Kevin Costner starred in Field of Dreams. If you've seen that movie, it came out in 1989. Unfortunately, that game that was scheduled to be played that Olasky is writing about had to be postponed because of COVID-19, but it's been rescheduled to take place this coming August. But he writes regarding that movie, he says, I've watched it many times. If asked to name my favorite movie, I might say The Great Escape or The Right Stuff, but my wife will tell you to fess up. It's Field of Dreams. Flawed though the movie is in many ways, it always chokes me up. Although called a baseball flick, the underlying motif is a father-son relationship. At the end, Costner's character asks his dad, you want to have a catch? My lifetime catches with my father, zero. He had no interest in baseball. I never played until I was 11. At that point, I was a fat kid with a lazy left eye, so my batting average during one year of Little League was 183. If I generously count as hits what were probably errors, still I wanted to be at least a decent fielder. So I nagged my father to come out on the street and throw me some ground balls. I said street because we lived in urban Massachusetts and had no backyard or nearby green space, which meant a missed ball would go rolling and rolling. And that contributed to the missed opportunity. One day, finally, my father agreed. We stood in front of the house in which we had an apartment. I walked 20 yards away. He threw me a ball that bounced twice before it should have hit my glove, and I missed it. Embarrassed and blaming my father rather than myself, I ran after it and yelled over my shoulder something like, why didn't you throw it straight? When I picked up the ball and turned around, he was walking up the steps to our front door. He went inside. That was it. We never again started a catch, nor did we talk much. And once I became a teenager, we spoke hardly at all. Fast forward to October 1984. I was 34, he was 67, and dying of bladder cancer. I lived 2,000 miles away and flew to Boston with the public goal of providing some comfort and help. 
But my private motive was selfish. To learn why my father had moved from brilliant youth just before World War II to post-war failure, at least in the eyes of my mother, decade after decade. That was a mystery. One evening, we sat on a Danish modern couch in their apartment after some perfunctory remarks. I threw him a question about his dropping out of graduate school. The question was harder and curvier than a polite inquiry should have been. He got up and walked away, saying over his shoulder something like, why don't you mind your own business? I put away the conversational ball and went to sleep. The next day I asked no more questions. My father and mother drove me to Boston's Logan Airport. He wore a baseball cap because chemotherapy had left him bald. I pulled my suitcase out of the trunk, shook his hand, leaned over and whispered in his ear, I love you. Because that seemed the right thing to say to a dying parent. I never saw him again. I wish I had persisted in my questioning. I should not have so readily given up. But for true love and to gain true family history, this month of October is the 35th anniversary of our non-conversation. Several years ago, I interrogated surviving relatives and obtained some old records so now I have a theory about my father's change. But the mind witness is long gone. In the magic of field of dreams, the son and the dad finally have a catch. That catches my tears every time. And then he writes, What's the takeaway for parents and children as they anticipate get-togethers at Thanksgiving next month? have a catch, or a family touch football game or tackle if you must. And at Christmas, talk with each other while you can, and thank God for wiping away tears. Alaska would later go on and say that the most moving letters ever written to World Magazine came in response to that column. He said that many readers identified with it because they had a distant, absent, seemingly uncaring, uncommunicative father. One wrote, my dad never, and I mean never, played anything with my brother or me. I deeply regret what I lost not having memories of my dad taking time to play with me. Another wrote, I know the great black hole that remains when a father is present and willfully absent at the same time. We finally walk away and begin the stretch for a heavenly father. I'm not going to give the book away, but the title and subtitle really say it all. And candidly, it's a book that I think many of you could benefit from. Because even though you've lost your dad, in some cases decades ago, like Alaska, you need to forgive your dads, who may have done much worse than not play catch with you. You know, today is Father's Day, and one of the things that I have learned after four decades of being a pastor 
and ministering in five different churches is one of the reasons that preachers don't often preach a Father's Day or Mother's Day message is because they know that it can be a painful listening experience for some. Oftentimes, the preacher sets before the ideal father. And rather than that motivating people, it generates frustration and disappointment and overwhelming guilt. Because truth be known, they know they've been a failure. What's more, oftentimes their children have proven to be a heartache. Their children really haven't brought them the joy that they had hoped for. I want to say publicly that I had a wonderful father, but he was by no means perfect. And by choice, I choose not to reflect on my father's failures. But I purposefully choose to remember all of the good things that my dad did. And so what I want to do on this Father's Day is I want to look at the end of a man's life who in the end got it right and whose actions and counsels are worth following. Because what David says to Solomon, and this is so important, is a reminder to us all that it's never too late as long as you still have breath to do what is right. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 2 that we read from. And what you find here is the end of an era as a father is on his deathbed. And what he does is he calls his son who's just been appointed as king and he offers to him some good counsel and advice. His name is David. And according to the New Testament, he had served God's purposes in his own generation. He had served as king in Israel for 40 years. And by the grace of God, he had established a capital city that would stand at the center of history. And he started a dynasty that would save the world. But even great kings die. And as David is there dying, there's some things that he wants to say and needs to say before he can die in peace. Things that might help his son avoid wasting his life. And he also wants to remind him that there are some incredibly dangerous pitfalls out there. So David commanded his son saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And it says, when David drew near for David to die, he gave charge to Solomon, his son. And he said, I'm about to go to the way of all the earth. And so he says, David, this is what I want you to do. I want you to be strong. And I want you to act like a man. What you find in these first 11 verses of 1 Kings 2 is the last will and testament of David. And as I was thinking about this, I realized that David was fortunate some people die suddenly and unexpectedly and quickly. And they're never given the chance to say what they want to say to their children or to their grandchildren. And that's unfortunate. Because most of us have something to say before we die. 
And because we're going to die unless Jesus comes back first, wise is the man or woman who plans that out. Let me suggest that a good thing to do is to think ahead to your dying words. What are you going to tell your kids? What are you going to tell your kiddos, your wife, your extended family, your friends, if you are about to die? What testimony would you give them? What spiritual legacy would you want to leave to your children and your grandchildren? And as I said, one of the ways to get ready to die is to think ahead about what you are going to say. And that's what you have here. Now, the passage itself is pretty straightforward. David's last will and testament consists of two, two sections, if you please. In verses 2 through 4, you have an address to Solomon's soul. And he's talking about the need for Solomon to have a spiritual commitment to the Word of God. And the second part runs through verses 5 to 9, where he addresses the security of Solomon's kingdom and the judgment that he is going to need to make regarding people that are around him. The two parts of this last will and testament are very, very different. In the first part, David gives general spiritual advice that, as we're going to see in a moment, can apply to anyone. But the second part, he gives some specific advice regarding three individuals, two of whom are enemies and one of whom is a friend. One's a bad guy, two are bad guys, one's a good guy. The first part of his speech is spiritual. The second part is political. And the difference has caused some people to suggest that really this is two separate addresses. And David really didn't give the latter part because they almost give the indication that he's a mean-spirited, vindictive, ungodly man. You know, he's sort of like Michael Colleone in The Godfather. Remember at the end of that great movie where Michael says to his brother-in-law, Carlo, who had betrayed not only Michael, but the family, and he says, today I settled all the family business. And he said he did it by killing Barzini, Philip Tatalia, Mo Green, Slotchy. He says they're all dead. And some people said that that David here is kind of being like a, a mafia boss. I don't think that's the case. And so what I want to do is I want to tackle the hard part first, and that is verses 5 through 9. You see, David here is at the end of a long reign over Israel. He had some outstanding debts to pay, some wrongs that needed to be made right, some old scores that needed to be settled. David, like many people, when it came time for him to die, had some unfinished business. So what he does is he calls his son Solomon, and he says, I want you to remember something. He says, there's, there's two guys out there that you need to be on the lookout for, and one that I want you to treat with kindness. 
He says, first, Solomon, you need to do something about that guy named Joab. David may have been old, but he'd not forgotten Joab's sin in killing two men in cold blood. And what he says in verses 5 and 6, he says, now you yourself know what Joab, son of Zariah, did to me, what he did to the two commanders of Israel's army, Abner and Amasa. He killed them. He shed their blood in peacetime as if in battle. And with that blood, he stained the belt around his waist and sandals at his feet. He says, deal with him according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. What he's saying here is that Joab, who incidentally had long served David as an effective military leader, he was the commander of David's army, is a problem. And the problem is Joab was someone who had used his power and influence in ungodly ways. And as you piece all of the stories together that are found in the varying historical books that talk about David's life, you realize that he was a man who had a personal agenda. He was the kind of leader who had a way of making people disappear if he didn't like them. And there was blood on his hands when it came to Abner and Amasa. David knew that he was a dangerous man who had more concerns about his self-interests than those of Solomon. And so what he says here is he's got to go. David evidently knew that he was a potential threat to Solomon. He knew that he was someone who would probably see Solomon as weak and vulnerable. And so in order to preserve the kingdom, he says, don't let his gray head go down to Sheol or the grave in peace. Earlier in chapter 1 of this book, Joab had sided with Adonijah in his bid for the throne. And evidently, David, as he's near the end of his life, he sees Joab for who he really is. He sees him as a threat. And he says he's got to be dealt with. But so too is Shimei. In fact, look at verse 8 and 9. It says, And remember, you have with Shimei, son of Gerah, the Benjamite from Baharim, who called down bitter curses on me the day I went to Mahanim. When he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword, but now do not consider him innocent. He too is a dangerous man. You are a man of wisdom, Solomon. You will know what to do with him. Bring his gray head down to the grave. This was a guy who, as you read in 2 Samuel 6, had gone out screaming and cursing at David. He was assaulting the king. He was throwing stones at David. And rather than putting him to death, David's servants, as, as David's servants encouraged him to do, he had trusted God, and he didn't put him to death. Later, Shimei regrets what he had done and begs for mercy, and David grants it. But David here, as he's near the end of his life, realizes that he's going to be a problem. And what he says is, Solomon, 
My son, don't let him die a natural death. Deal with him. Now again, these seemingly cold, blooded, ruthless, cruel instructions seem out of place with a man of God. But here's what you need to remember. David and Solomon were anointed by God to serve as kings in Israel. And like all other rulers and authorities, they were appointed by God to bear the power of the sword. It was their job to bring about justice. And so this is not a man out of control, being spiteful in his old age. David was a divinely anointed king. And any assault on his person was tantamount to attacking the kingdom of God. That's why as you read the life of David, David refused to lift a hand against King Saul. Why? Because Saul was God's anointed. And now David himself realizes that while he was the Lord's anointed, now Solomon was God's anointed. And these men were a threat to the kingdom. The issue here is national security for the nation. And so the instructions David gave about Joab and Shimei were kingdom-minded instructions based on the Word of God. So Solomon needs to deal with these men swiftly. He wasn't out of line in what he said. This was what needed to be done. This wasn't a personal vendetta. Now, lest you think that David is some cold-hearted killer, I want you to notice what he says in verse 7. Remember I said there were three people that needed to be dealt with. Two of them were enemies, but one of them is a friend. And he says in verse 7, he says, what I want you to do is I want you to show kindness to the son of Barzilla of Gilead and let them be among those who eat at your table. They stood by me when I fled from your brother Absalom. This was an incident that happened when Absalom had rebelled against his daddy and had plunged the nation into civil war. David and his men literally had to run for their lives. They fled into the wilderness. They needed help. And Barzilla comes to his rescue. And you read about that in 2 Samuel 17. And so David says, Solomon, I want you to reward that act of kindness. It's interesting that Barzilla, we know, was an older person. And when David wanted to show him kindness, David says, that the father rather says, why don't you show the kindness to my children? And that's what he's talking about here. And what David is saying here is that there are some people, Solomon, and you need to go into this with your eyes wide open. There are some people who are for you and some people who are against you. And they need to deal, be dealt with accordingly. What I find here is a father as he's lying on his deathbed giving his son an honest, direct, unvarnished assessment of the reality of life. Dads, teach your children that. As they get older and they can handle life, tell them the truth. 
And here's the application. When it comes to the kingdom of God, there are only two kinds of people. Those who are for the kingdom and those who are against the kingdom. And the great choice that people face is whether they are going to be against the kingdom and the kingdom's true king or whether they're going to be part of that kingdom. And you know what? The choice is theirs. Will they be for Jesus Christ or will they be against him? Friend, people have a choice. And they can either waste their lives by putting their own kingdom ahead of God's kingdom, which is what Joab did, or even worse, they can throw rocks at the king as Shimei did, cursing the very name of Jesus Christ. And when people go down that path, you know what they can expect? Kingly wrath. They can expect justice. And that justice means punishment. God is a just and righteous king. His vengeance may not come right away any more than it came right away for Joab and Shimei when they did what they initially did, but it will come. And that judgment will be final. When everyone who opposes the kingdom of God is going to perish, those who embrace the kingdom, as Barzilla did, you know what they're going to do? They're going to be rewarded. And they're going to sit at the king's table. And here's the application. Friend, teach your children. Teach your grandchildren that there is a life for every loyal servant of God who swears allegiance to Christ as king. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And just as there was for the sons of Barzilla, life and an abundance Feasting at the table of the king, that can be yours as well. That can be your children and your children's children. And how do they get it? They get it by trusting the king. And we receive the gracious eternal life that he offers, and he generously rewards us accordingly as we do service for him and the king. Again, in this life, there are only two kinds of people. And they will meet two completely different destinies. And what makes the difference is a person's relationship to Jesus Christ. Either they're servants of the king or they're enemies of his kingdom. And the choice is theirs. And again, we're not going to take the time, but I hope that you will sometime before the day is out or the week, that you'll read the rest of this chapter. Because what you find there is Solomon carrying out the directives of his daddy. He deals with those who need to be punished, and he deals with those who need to be rewarded. Now, that's the social, political, national side of the command. But I want to look at the beginning part that's the personal and spiritual in nature. Because I'm convinced of all the commands that David gave, this was the one that was dearest to him. Look what he says in verses 2 and following. He says, I am about to go the way of all the earth. So, Solomon, I want you to be strong. I want you to act like a man. 
And observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. You know, we could spend a long, long time breaking this down. But what I want you to see here is one fundamental truth, and it's simply this. David wanted for his son what every father wants for his. And that is he wants him to be strong and to be a man. And here's what's ever so important. David defines manhood. He defines strength. And it's far different than most people would define it today. Because what he says is, is Solomon. Solomon, you need to remember that manhood is not found in athleticism. It's not found in physical strength or how you fight in defeating your opponent. David had done all of that. Remember what he had done? He, he had killed both man and beast. Manhood is not found in sexual conquests. It's not found in having a successful career and being regarded highly by your colleagues or rewarded by your employer. That's not to suggest that you shouldn't strive for those things. But success is not found in those Success is not found in financial independence, although I think you should strive for that as well. David says, if, if you pursue those things, sexual conquests, athleticism, physical strength, a successful career, financial independence, friend, you're wasting your time. You know what David's saying here? He's saying that manliness is found in being a man who is obedient to the Word of God. To put it another way, manliness is found in keeping God's law and walking in God's way. Again, we could spend a lot of time breaking this down, but it's very interesting to look at this and to see the various terms that are used to describe the Word of God. They're called decrees and commands, laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. And each of those terms has just a slightly different nuance. Decrees and commands are the general orders that are found in the Ten Commandments and elsewhere. The laws and regulations are the directives for specific issues of life. Such as how much you should pay someone back if you steal from them or how you are to offer a particular sacrifice at the various festivals in Israel. But you know what David's main point is? He's saying, son, I want you to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I want you to take this book and I want you to realize that this is to be your guide. What's more, it's not something that you can pick and choose from. 
And accept the things and obey the things that you find acceptable and reject those that you find offensive. It's being obedient to every last word of the Word of God. And you know what? What was true for Solomon is also true for us. God's Word teaches us how to think, how to speak, and how to live. It tells us what to love and what to hate. It shows us how to glorify God. And that's why the ministry of a church needs to be firmly built squarely and unashamedly on the Word of God. You know, one of my favorite preachers was a man named James Boyce. He died 20 years ago, I think. He was 62 years old. He was the pastor at Philadelphia's 10th Presbyterian Church. It was a church that Connie and I used to attend when we were students in Bible college. He died of liver cancer. But Dr. Boyce wrote the following. He said, we believe the Bible to be the Word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. And it is practical because we believe the Bible must be the treasure most valued and attended to in the church's life. And that's true. And that's why the challenge we face in trying to find an associate pastor can be so challenging. (laughs) Because sadly, not everybody feels that way. They're more interested in music and entertainment or fellowship. And as important as those things are, what is absolutely foundational for the success of a church is the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And when David told Solomon to walk in God's ways, he was telling him simply, live a biblical lifestyle. The Bible should be the predominant influence upon your thinking and your manner of life. And you know what he's saying here? He's saying that's what makes a man a man. That's what makes a woman a woman. When your life is based on the Word of God, and when it comes to godly manliness, God's Word amazingly puts everything into perspective. The Bible teaches that you and I are to use our physical strength towards patience and gentleness rather than selfish anger. And so rather than striking out at others, we use our power and strength to protect the weak. The Bible teaches that a man is to bring his sexual desires under the control of the Holy Spirit so that rather than out being out there satisfying your own lust, you give your body wholly and your heart and soul to one woman for a lifetime so that God can make a family. The Bible teaches you how to live in your daily calling on the job so that your work will bring honor to Jesus Christ instead of to yourself and so that you could advance God's kingdom as He entrusts to you the resources needed to be given. And you're not out there running after your own foolish pleasures. Friend, the best way and only way to avoid wasting your life is to base everything you do on the Word of God. And dads, that's what we need to do. That's what we need to communicate to our children. Not just verbally, but by our our very lifestyle Now, I'm not naive. 
As I said, I think one of the reasons people hate coming to church on Father's Day and Mother's Day is they didn't have a godly father. They may have had a dad like Marvin Alasky did. But here's what I find ever so helpful in this passage. And that is, it's never too late to do what is right. Isn't it interesting that David waited till his deathbed to give Solomon this good, lasting advice? Now, don't wait that long for your kiddos, okay, and your grandkids. Spend the time with them, talking to them about these issues, the importance of the Word of God in their life. The reality that when it comes to living, you know, there's people that are going to be for God's kingdom and against God's kingdom. And be careful who you side with. Now, there's one more point I want to make, and it's this. If you're here this morning and your dad dropped the ball, and many did, you've got to forgive him. And you've got to move on. Marvin Alasky in that book, Lament of My Father, writes that the fundamental problem with his father was sin. Was sin. He writes, history shows its sin all the way down. We are naturally wretched. Passing on original sin in every ways occasionally creative, usually repetitious. But then he writes this, an iron chain seems to be bound, seems to bond generation after generation. In other words, there's a cycle that seems to, unable to be broken. Yet he writes, sometimes with God's grace and mercy, that iron chain becomes a, re, a readily breakable daisy chain. Those who see the miraculous transition cry out joyfully as the Apostle Paul did. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he closes with this. Researching lament for a father taught me that my dad was wounded, as was my mother, as was her father, as were the Cossacks, as is everyone. But then he writes this, but no wound is too deep for Christ to heal. And again, I don't know where you are on the spectrum as far as your relationship and attitude towards your dad is. But you've got to move on. If you had a bad beginning, bad experience, you've got to forgive because as Alaska writes, no wound is too deep for Christ to heal. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this passage of Scripture. We're grateful that you preserved David's final words to his son Solomon. And that they are words that can apply to us on this Father's Day. I pray that whether we had a wonderful father or one who is less than ideal, that we, we would forgive him. We pray, Father, that we would not cause us to be bound to 
their behavior by repeating it in ours. Help us as dads and moms and people who even have influence over children to spend the needed time with them, calling them to a life of godliness and a life of obedience to the Word of God, and also reminding them of the realities of life. I pray, Father, that you would seal these truths to our heart, for we ask it as God's people together, in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said, Amen.